From a young age, Hollywood taught me that the bully never comes out on top. He may use his sharp elbows and hostile tactics to get to the top of the mountain, but it doesn't take long for him to fall, and fall hard, for his hubris and his ever-growing list of enemies to bring him down. This was the arc I was taught as a young kid, but one that sadly did not end up being as true or as accurate as I hoped it would be. The bullies in my life too often were unchecked, and the nice guys too frequently finished last. I suppose this was one of the many reasons I was so disappointed when Donald Trump won the election back in 2016. How could this man, who mocked and berated everybody from a disabled reporter to a war hero, get rewarded with the public support which propelled him into the highest office in the country? Set aside the racism, the ineptitude, the criminality, the lies, and the disrespect for the rule of law, and I think it was that I had been led to believe that someone like him could never be on top, that the last four years have been so frustrating for me. This, of course, is why the last couple weeks have been so satisfying. The natural order of the universe has been restored. Good conquered evil, the nice guy finished first, and the bully was finally brought down to size. But before we get too far down that road, you might be wondering, what the heck does this have to do with the theme of this podcast, which was, of course, about sports games that were canceled? For those of you who might not remember, from March through June of this year, I told the story of 10 canceled games while sports in America had been put on pause due to the ongoing public health crisis. Well, sports are back, and have been back since my last episode. We, after all, have a Stanley Cup champion, an NBA Finals champion, a World Series champion, and football is back in full speed. But now, we seem to be living through another hugely significant moment. And that, of course, is the tail end of the 2020 election, which, despite Donald Trump's best efforts, is over. This election will be remembered for many different reasons, but one of which will be that the man who seemed uncancelable, someone who no story could stick to, who survived scandal after scandal, who even turned impeachment into a slap on the wrist, appears to have finally been cancelled. And so, to reflect on this moment, over the next few weeks, I'm going to focus on a different type of cancellation, not of games like we focused on in season one of the podcast, but cancellation of players from sports, from everything from suspensions to lifetime banishments. Which brings me to today's story, which centers around money, egos, kicking and screaming, digging dirt up on opponents, a refusal to say uncle and concede, fixers, using litigation to try to fight back from expulsion, and if you think I'm talking about Donald Trump, you're close, but no cigar. No, today's story is about someone very similar to Trump. In fact, who some have said was Trump's best friend. Someone who was lambasted in the New York tabloids at the same time Trump was, just on the other side of the paper. Someone who, like Trump, also admired and feared his self-made and demanding father. Someone who, alongside Trump, had disgraced lawyer Roy Cohen as a philosophical mentor, and who adhered to the attorney's philosophies to never admit being wrong and when in doubt, sue, sue, sue. 
someone who, just like Trump, had become larger than life in New York via media sensationalism. Someone who, like the Donald, would take credit for what went right and blame mercilessly others when anything went wrong within their respective businesses. Both would attack their enemies relentlessly, including through the use of derisive nicknames. Both were, for lack of a better word for it, bullies. And most importantly, as of the last few weeks, both were eventually brought down a peg or two. And yes, I'm talking about none other than George Steinbrenner. This was a man who, after all, had been disciplined by Major League Baseball for everything from tampering with free agents, like when he was fined $5,000 in 1979 in connection with Brian Downing, to questioning the integrity of Major League umpires, for which he was suspended in 1983, and to attacking his fellow owners, like when he was fined for attacking Chicago White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf, who infamously stated after the fact, how do you know when George Steinbrenner is lying? The answer, when his lips are moving. But despite the bigness of Mr. Steinbrenner and his accomplishments in baseball, today's story starts with a 165-pound middle infielder who played outside the microscope of the New York media. Someone who also coincidentally ended up in politics, but as a Democrat and on a much smaller scale. Today's story begins with someone named Frank White. The year was 1980. One year removed from being back-to-back -back World Series champions, the Bronx Bombers were back in contention. After eking out a neck-and-neck -neck divisional race with the Baltimore Orioles, the New York Yankees finished with 103 wins, the most in baseball, and were well on their way to a postseason where all the smart money had them favored to go the distance. But after the vaunted Yankee offense, which finished second in all of baseball that season in both runs and RBI, could not score more than two runs in any of the three American League Championship Series games, and Mr. October seemed to have forgotten what month it was, the baseball world was shocked as a young royal second baseman named Frank White, who never wowed anybody during his career with anything other than his glove, batted 545 and accounted for 20% of his team's RBIs and 20% of his team's runs on his way to winning the ALCS MVP. Frank White, who manned second base when the Royals played and lost to the Yankees in the American League Championship Series in 1976, 77, and 78, accumulated as many total bases in the three-game sweep of the pinstripes in 1980 as he accumulated in all three championship series in the 70s against the Yankees combined. When all was said and done, the Yankees were sent home early packing, and the owner, George Steinbrenner, was aching for another bat to make sure his team's 1980 postseason stat line would never be repeated. Enter the former multi-sport phenom, Dave Winfield. Dave Mark Winfield was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, to split parents. At a young age, David and his older brother showed signs of athletic brilliance, focusing their talents on basketball and baseball. At six foot six, the younger Winfield earned a full scholarship to the University of Minnesota. In 1972, he led the Gophers to their only Big Ten basketball championship of all time, and the next season he won the MVP of the College Baseball World Series. When his tenure at the U of Minnesota came to a conclusion, Dave Winfield was drafted by four different teams across three different sports, 
something only six people have ever done. He was even drafted by the Minnesota Vikings, even though he had never played any college football whatsoever. Picked by the San Diego Padres with the fourth overall selection in the 1973 Major League Baseball draft, the towering Minnesotan went west, and Winfield did not disappoint. Between 1975 and 1980, he reached double digits in home runs and stolen bases every single season, leading the league in 1979 with 118 RBI and 34 jacks to boot. By the time the 1980 season came to a close, Winfield was a four-time All-Star, a two-time Gold Glove winner, and someone who by all measures was emerging as a bona fide star, and perhaps the star Steinbrenner believed he needed to get back and over the mountaintop. But the budding star was given an assist that offseason, indirectly, by Ted Turner, the Braves owner, who probably unnecessarily inflated the market for Winfield by signing Claudel Washington to a whopping five-year, $3.5 million contract. The highly less talented, less applauded, and lesser-known former Oakland A's star was able to command nearly $1 million a season. And so the sky was literally the limit for Winfield. With the Frank White overperformance and the Claude L. Washington overpayment in the background, the stage was set for Winfield to get paid by the Yankees. The Minnesotan was represented by Al Froman, a former caterer turned agent who had migrated from Long Island to California on the advice of doctors who were treating him for a heart condition. Froman came to represent a handful of players on the San Diego Padres and eventually met and represented Winfield. The New York Times described Froman as someone at five foot eight inches. Froman was a man whose moods could swing from torpidity to chain smoking effervescence, his words and ideas emerging with the fluency that troubles some who have dealt with the pinky ringed businessman. Among his detractors, Froman is viewed as something of a con, a fast talking operator who is using the good fellow Winfield to his own ends. Froman and Winfield never reduced their relationship to a written contract, saying instead, their partnership was based on trust. Froman helped Winfield obtain incremental salary increases during his tenure with the Padres, culminating in a four-year, $1.4 million deal that expired after that 1980 season. And when that season ended, Steinbrenner's eye was caught by the emerging star, stating, my baseball people tell me he's a premier player. He can run, throw, and hit with power. By the time of Winfield's negotiations with the Yankees, Froman had divested himself from all other player clients. Winfield was his most important business objective. When those negotiations came to a close, Froman had helped Winfield obtain what was at the time the most lucrative contract in baseball history, locking in a 10-year contract with a $1.5 million per season base, various incentives, $300,000 in annual contributions to Winfield's foundation, and a cost-of-living increase to accommodate the move from Southern California to Manhattan. When the high-profile deal was finally inked, Froman moved back to New York to be with his high-profile client, despite the ill effects the climate might have on his health. But it was that cost-of-living salary escalator that first caused friction between George Steinbrenner and his new star. It seemed the boss underestimated how much that particular term would inflate Winfield's compensation. After the star's salary was adjusted, and to the chagrin of the Yankee brass, 
Winfield's total contract exceeded $20 million over a decade with the team. Overnight, Winfield became the game's richest performer, and once the superstar was in pinstripes, the focal point of the baseball universe, whose every move was recorded by the New York tabloids. Curiously, Winfield's first season in the Bronx was split in half due to concerns relating directly to contracts just like his with the Yankees. Exploding player salaries were driving a deeper wedge into the owner-player relationship, which manifested in a 1981 midseason strike that left Major League Baseball in a peculiar posture where each half of the season had division winners. Nevertheless, Winfield produced laudable numbers during the strike-shortened season, earning an all-star appearance, a Silver Slugger award, and finishing seventh in the MVP balloting. The Yankees won the East for the first half of the season and surged all the way to the World Series, but saw their World Series dreams cut short after a young superstar named Fernando Valenzuela saved the Dodgers from going down 0-3 in the series and ignited a four-game winning streak that earned Los Angeles the game's highest honors. As the Yankees gave away their 2-0 series lead, the player the New York Times called the Yankees' $20 million gamble had just one hit in the series, going one for 22 in all six games. If that were not enough to piss off the boss, Steinbrenner got even angrier when he heard that the easy-going Winfield tried to make a joke out of his slump by asking his teammates for the ball from his one and only hit in the series. This was the first and last time the Yankees made the postseason during Winfield's 10-year contract with New York. But the Steinbrenner-Winfield relationship, which had soured in just the days after the agreement between the two was finalized, after the boss realized just how significant the cost-of-living escalator would be to his bottom line, continued to erode in the coming years. During 1982, perhaps still frustrated by having one pulled over by Winfield during contract negotiations, Steinbrenner decided to retaliate against his prized player by failing to make good on his commitment to make payments to the David M. Winfield Foundation. Contract be damned, Steinbrenner didn't care. Winfield, however, responded to his owner's bullying by suing the boss on behalf of the foundation, seeking back payment. That same season, which was one in which the Yankees finished below 500. Winfield clubbed his career high in home runs by knocking 37 out of the yard. But Winfield's gaudy statistics did not translate into success in the win column, prompting Steinbrenner to proclaim that midseason to the world at large, Winfield isn't a winner the way Reggie Jackson was. Winfield can't carry a team, he said. The following offseason, after the boss once again failed to come due on his payments to Winfield's nonprofit, the foundation filed a second lawsuit against Steinbrenner, seeking back payment of monies owed under Winfield's agreement with the Yankees. Over the next several seasons, Winfield continued to produce, knocking in 100-plus RBI every single season except 1987, but the Yankees could not climb to the top of the division. That frustration led Steinbrenner to continue to publicly ridicule his highest-paid player, like in September of 1985. After a critical loss to the Toronto Blue Jays, Steinbrenner asked reporters, Does anyone know where I can find Reggie Jackson? I let Mr. October get away, and I got Mr. May, Dave Winfield. He gets his numbers when they don't count. 
Steinbrenner made these comments on the same night that Winfield had driven in his 100th run of the season to become the first Yankee to get at least 100 RBIs in four consecutive years since Yogi Berra did so from 1953 to 1956. After seasons of frustration and public criticism, sometime during the 1986 season, Steinbrenner decided to go nuclear against his star. First, for no legitimate reason whatsoever, the boss ordered his manager, Lou Pinella, to start benching Winfield, the best hitter on the team, for no good reason. Then Steinbrenner started trying to trade Winfield, dangling him out there for anybody who would take him. Winfield, however, was a 10-5 and player, so he had the right to veto trade subject to certain limits. According to the terms in Winfield's contract, he was obligated to put forth seven teams to which he would accept a trade every season. And so Winfield, each season to incense his owner, identified the other teams in the American League East, plus the Seattle Mariners, as the only teams to which he would accept a trade. Around that same time, the boss started collaborating with a New York gambler named Howie Spira, who was deep in debt to the mob. Spira needed money, and Steinbrenner needed dirt, and so the two developed a working relationship sometime near the end of 1986. Steinbrenner promised Spira $150,000, a job, and a residence at the Yankee owner's Radisson Bay Harbor Hotel in Tampa, in exchange for whatever negative information Spira could provide about Winfield. Right out of the gate, Spira, who claimed he had worked as a publicist for Winfield's foundation, reported to Steinbrenner that Winfield was not making payments to his own foundation, as he claimed he was doing to the public. He further claimed that Winfield had misused and misappropriated the nonprofit's money. But Spira's campaign against Winfield was not just limited to allegations regarding his foundation. Spira also reported to Steinbrenner that Winfield had threatened to kill him after Spira could not repay a $15,000 loan. Perhaps even more sensationally, Spira claimed that Winfield, with agent Al Froman, contrived a story that Winfield received death threats during the 1981 World Series to explain away the outfielder's dreadful 1-for-22 showing versus the Dodgers. But as Spira was delivering the dirt... Steinbrenner was not making good on his promise to pay Spira. While he paid him $40,000, he never paid the remaining one hundred and ten that was owed. The hostilities between Steinbrenner and Winfield reached a fever pitch in 1988. Steinbrenner publicly criticized Winfield for having a child out of wedlock. Winfield soon thereafter released his autobiography, A Player's Life, which detailed the years of humiliation Steinbrenner subjected Winfield to. But right as Winfield's book was being released, however, Steinbrenner preemptively struck by planting a story in the press indicating that the Yankees were preparing to sue Winfield and the Winfield Foundation. The team would supposedly accuse the Foundation of misappropriation and misuse of funds. The report indicated that the Yankees were seeking to put into evidence affidavits from five people who stated that someone close to Winfield wrote false death threat letters on Winfield's life after the 1981 World Series. Though the story was anonymously sourced, everybody knew that the story had been spoon-fed to journalists by none other than Winfield's biggest bully himself, George Steinbrenner. Spokespeople from the FBI denied the story, 
The district attorney's office said no such investigation was underway. But because Winfield's book hit Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner was determined to hit back. But here's where Steinbrenner got got. In 1990, after failing to receive the final $110,000 promised by Steinbrenner, Spira started making threats to Steinbrenner. With little choice other than to go to law enforcement, Steinbrenner brought in authorities, which led to a conviction of Spira. But in disposing of his Spira problem, Steinbrenner created a league problem. Once Major League Baseball caught wind of the association between the owner of its most historic franchise and a known criminal, all of which centered around digging up dirt on the former star player, Commissioner Faye Vincent empowered Washington lawyer John Dowd to investigate the matter. In June 1990, Dowd delivered his report to Vincent, which revealed substantial contact between Steinbrenner and Spira over a three-year period. Vincent summoned Steinbrenner to the commissioner's office on July 5th, the day after the boss's 60th birthday. Vincent was joined by his deputy commissioner, Steve Greenberg, but also brought in respected former federal judge Harold Tyler to make sure due process was afforded to the boss so that there wouldn't be any improper behavior for the boss to seize upon or criticize at a later date. The first meeting lasted eight hours and was picked back up the next day for another three hours. The 372-page transcript revealed Steinbrenner offering rambling answers, defensive postures, evasive tactics, and one contradiction after another about why he paid Spira. After the investigation concluded, Vincent wrote, In sum, Mr. Steinbrenner has offered multiple and conflicting explanations of his decision to give $40,000 to Mr. Spira, ranging from charity to extortion. But I am persuaded that neither extreme was at work here. And so, at 9 a.m. on July 30th at his Midtown office, Vincent handed Steinbrenner his decision, a two-year suspension. Vincent recalled, I was not going to throw him out of baseball. It was not a capital crime. It was a felony, but it was not something I was going to execute him for. But Steinbrenner did not want his name associated with the word suspension, thinking it would damage his chance to retain his status as a U.S. Olympic Committee vice president. So he offered to be permanently banned like Pete Rose or Shoeless Joe Jackson, Jackson, as long as someone in his family would not automatically be dismissed as his successor. Major League Baseball was ready for this strategy, and over the next 10-plus hours, the sides haggled over terms. But ultimately, Steinbrenner signed an agreement in which he was banned from running the day-to-day -day operations of the Yankees, effective August 20, 1990, and had to divest from owning 55% of the team to less than half of the franchise. Steinbrenner agreed in his termination document not to sue, and said upon leaving the commissioner's office that day, I'm very happy it was resolved. I'm very satisfied with the resolution. This was George Steinbrenner, who, like Donald Trump, was a disciple of Roy Cohen. He was not happy. He was not satisfied. And he was definitely not going to avoid suing. But after the banishment was made public, the tabloids ripped Steinbrenner with headlines like, The Boss Gets Benched, and The Most Hated Man in Baseball. And fans across baseball celebrated the suspension, including ones at Yankee Stadium. For that moment in time, the bully had finally been toppled. But like Trump, conceding defeat was not something in Steinbrenner's DNA. 
the boss immediately started scrambling to create a shadow network of control behind the scenes in the Yankees' front office, then to create additional leverage against a commissioner who was rapidly falling out of favor with other owners, Steinbrenner started orchestrating lawsuits all by proxies against Faye Vincent. As the pressure began to mount, less than two years after the lifetime ban on July 24, 1992, and as one of his last official acts while he was being ousted by various disgruntled owners, Faye Vincent unilaterally lifted Steinbrenner's lifetime suspension, effective as of the following season. It's not entirely clear why Vincent had the 180. Some have said that Steinbrenner and his role in keeping the Yankees at the center of the Major League Baseball universe was just too vital to the sport's economic interests to let him be suspended for the rest of his life. Others thought it was the lawsuits that Steinbrenner and his associates had filed against Major League Baseball during his suspension, all of which were dropped in exchange for reinstatement, that finally was the tipping point. And others have suggested that it was the owners themselves who voted to bring their ignominious brother back into the fraternity. Paul Beeston, president of the Toronto Blue Jays, said at the time, I'm happy George is back. I'm probably the only guy in baseball who missed him. That puts me on the other side of the sanity schedule. The beauty of beating the Yankees was that you beat George Steinbrenner. Regardless of the cause, by the spring of 1993, Steinbrenner was back and at the helm of the Yankees, a place where he would stay until he died in 2010 when he died of a heart attack. While Steinbrenner was back in baseball, the stigma of being banned from baseball for life created a shadow that hung over him for the rest of his life. Like losing a presidential election or being impeached, Steinbrenner never escaped the stigma. Indeed, when Steinbrenner died, while many eulogized the deceased Yankee owner, no article could be published without mentioning that time he paid for dirt on his star player and received a lifetime ban in return. But before you feel too bad for Steinbrenner, consider the fact that his suspension may have actually helped his franchise more than it hurt it. After all, between Steinbrenner's resurrection and his ultimate passing, the Yankees returned to the mountaintop, becoming one of, if not the most dominant team over the next two decades, winning five World Series championships, making seven World Series appearances, and being a perennial threat every season to win it all. With some hindsight, it seems that those successes may have had more to do with what Steinbrenner didn't do than what he did. Now, I know that's blasphemy to you Yankee fans, but hear me out. It was 1990, after all, when the Yankees took a chance on a young kid from Puerto Rico in the 24th round named Jorge Posada. It was during 1992, when Posada worked his way up the Yankees organization, that the team decided to transition him from second base to catcher, a position he would end up playing in 125 postseason games in pinstripes. And it was that same 1990 draft, just two rounds earlier, when the Yankees selected a knuckleball-throwing southpaw out of a high school in Texas named Andy Pettit, who would go on to win more than 200 games for New York. And it was 1990 when a skinny kid from Panama, who most scouts regarded as unathletic, signed a contract with the Yankees organization. And it was during that time, while Steinbrenner was banished, when the youngster slowly climbed the organization's ranks, building confidence and maturing into a player that would ultimately be the greatest postseason relief pitcher of all time. That, of course, was Mariano Rivera. 
And it was 1992, while Steinbrenner continued to languish in isolation from the organization, when Yankee scout Dick Grotch convinced the team's brass to take a chance on a high school grad from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who had worshipped none other than Dave Winfield all his life, with the sixth pick in that draft, and who would go on to become the team's captain and face of the pinstripes for the next two decades. That player, of course, was Derek Jeter. It was this core four, after all, not the flashy free agents or the top trade acquisitions that were part of each of the subsequent five World Series championships the Yankees claimed after Steinbrenner returned to baseball. Who knows what would have happened to that core four if Steinbrenner had been around to dangle those budding stars for fading all-stars, like he did when he shipped off Willie McGee in 1981 for Bob Sykes, who promptly retired one year after joining the Yankees, or when he let Fred McGriff slip out of the Yankee system in 1982 for two nobodies, or when he flipped future Cy Young Award winner Doug Drabeck in 1986 for two talentless players in return, or when he made the trade so bad that it made it into an episode of Seinfeld, when he sent Jay Buhner to the Mariners in 1988 for Ken Phelps. Perhaps the lifetime ban that wasn't may have ultimately been what helped solidify the team's core so that the Yankees could transform into the empire it became from Steinbrenner's return through his passing. I've often wondered what was really going on between Steinbrenner and Winfield. Why did Steinbrenner really hate Winfield so much? After all, could an experienced businessman like George really have been snookered by an aging agent from Long Island? And even after the cost of living adjustment, the 10-year deal was still a team-friendly agreement given its longevity, for while Winfield was the highest paid player after inking his deal, didn't take long for salary inflation to propel several other players over that watermark, with Steve Garvey, Mike Schmidt, and George Foster eclipsing Winfield's annual salary just two years later. And how could Steinbrenner really blame Winfield for his team's woes when the slugger was an all-star every year he played on the team and won six gold gloves and five silver slugger awards during his time in pinstripes? In other words, didn't the $20 million gamble pay off? Or was there something else going on? In Winfield's autobiography, published in 1988, there's a remark Willie Randolph supposedly made when Winfield first joined the Yankees. He said, You can be a good Yankee and a well-respected one, but as a black man, you're never going to be a true Yankee. Given Steinbrenner's feuds with Reggie Jackson during the 1970s and his close friendship with Donald Trump, it is hard to dispute that explanation. Regardless of the cause of the underlying feud, there are aspects of the story of Steinbrenner's suspension that feel a little bit like what we're living through right now. Faye Vincent once said, George believed the rules of ordinary people, business, commerce, and baseball, did not apply to him, which feels a little bit like someone who is in the process of being banned from the White House as we speak. Both the boss and the Donald were people who believed that their sheer will could overtake any and all obstacles. Their privilege, their hyper-litigiousness, and their dirty tactics were designed to avoid being canceled, no matter the cost. 
It certainly worked for Steinbrenner. And it certainly worked for Trump after being impeached, but not removed from office after using his power to dig up dirt on his political rival, Joe Biden. But is there anything we can learn from these moments? The cancellation of Steinbrenner and the slow-moving ouster of Trump? Maybe it's that when someone shows you who they are, don't doubt them. Way back in 1974, you see, Steinbrenner's disdain for the rules was on full display for the world and Major League Baseball to see when he was charged with 15 counts of violating campaign finance rules for his donations to then-President Richard Nixon. Steinbrenner was also accused of attempting to influence and intimidate employees of his company, American Shipbuilding Co., into lying to a grand jury about the nature of a $100,000 contribution to the committee to re-elect the president. On November 27, 1974, Steinbrenner was suspended by then-Commissioner Bowie Kuhn from active management of the team for two years, but Kuhn reinstated him 15 months later, citing good behavior. The notion of history repeating itself makes me think of about Trump's claims that the 2020 election was rigged against him. This is the same guy, after all, who in 2016 refused to acknowledge the results of the Iowa caucuses, claiming that only fraud could explain how he lost to Ted Cruz. Maybe if there is one thing we can all remember when this national nightmare finally ends, when someone shows you that they don't care about the rules, don't be surprised when they break them again. Ultimately, Trump may pull a Steinbrenner and come back bigger and better than before. He may run again in 2024, or he may start his own media conglomerate after leaving the White House. Oddly, he may end up more powerful in terms of swaying public opinion and tilting the political processes outside the Oval Office than within it. But for anybody who has ever been on the other end of a bully, take some solace in one undeniable immutable, unchangeable fact, a fact that will be written in our history books, not in pencil, but in permanent ink. Just like his friend was permanently stigmatized with his lifetime ban from baseball 30 years earlier, Donald Trump has lost the 2020 election. Teddy Roosevelt once said that he abhorred bullying by the strong at the expense of the weak, whether among nations or individuals. And we can all take a big sigh of relief, because for a moment this month, Americans made it clear that they do too. <laughs>